0: Hello and welcome. This is another edition of your favourite podcast. It
1: is. And I'm well, saying again. that with
0: absolutely no basis uh, at all, other than I know that we're already embedded deep somewhere in your heart.
1: Yes, we are. You're, you're saving us onto your phone and we thank you for it. Yes,
0: it's uh, it's another edition of Simon Moe's Books of the Year and we have a couple of very fine books. If you listen to our teaser from a few days ago, you'll know that it's going to be Alan Johnson and Mark Kermode talking about uh, their kind of musical memoirs. And actually, uh, although they've lived very different lives, there's quite a big crossover. What you yes,
1: yes, there definitely is. I think we should also acknowledge the fact that you do a podcast with Mark. Oh yes, uh, the film, film show, podcast. Yes, which uh, those of us who've been listening to podcasts for years will know that I, I've been listening to that for something like twelve years, and I know when I started there were only three podcasts worth listening to. It was yours. Yes, it was Adam and Joe on XFM and This American Life. Those were the only ones that anyone was listening to at that point. And here we are crossing the streams How about by getting that? him onto this podcast. Yes so uh, that's all uh, to come in this edition of Books of the
0: Year thanks for getting in touch you can do that uh, in a number of ways you can email books of the year at yahoo.com uh, you can tweet us at books of the year yeah uh, what a great and, handle that is yeah and
1: we've got uh, loads more uh, followers. Yes, we have, yes. Thousands of you follow us all the time. And, and obviously subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a five-star review. Those are the only ones we read. That's very good. And if you could send us money as well. Yes, be please. Good. Or if
0: you see us in the street, just hand us cash. I mean, you know, I'm not above that. Um, so some of the
1: tweets that have come in uh, in the last few days. You'll remember that when we were recording uh, the podcast with Sean Usher and John Boyne, yes. there was something of a bone of contention about Secret 7 versus Famous 5. I think John was Secret... Secret Seven and Sean was was Famous Five. So we did a vote. Yes, and the vote overwhelmingly seventy four percent the Famous Five, twenty six percent Secret Seven, which I'm going to say is a landslide. Uh, yes, well, I think Five. yeah,
0: I think I think you're probably right. I mean, I I read the Famous Five books. I, I never read them as a kid, but I read them to child one when he was yes. and it was age appropriate. And there are a couple of bits that you have to kind of re yes different tell times because yes. different times. <laughs> But there was no getting around the fact that in most famous five books, if there was a swarthy-looking yes. person from out of town, yes. maybe identified as a gypsy or something, yes. that you yes. knew that they were the culprit. It was probably them. It was yes. always them. Yes. So when reading it out, you had to try and explain and interpret.
1: <laughs> that Perhaps it... Enid Blyton could have been a little bit more uh,
0: aware. Yeah. Uh, Ian Perser, five upper middle class. Seven working lower middle class. Seven appealed to me so much more, which is exactly the point that yes. uh, John was making.
1: Yes, yeah, Mulberry Verne uh, says the same. Ah, oh, Secret Seven for me. Fabus Five word just too posh. Angie
0: Kusk suddenly I fancy lashings of lemonade, which apparently they never said. Apparently that was just... wasn't it? One... Lashings
1: of ginger beer. Did they not? I don't say, think no? they did. No, I don't no. think they
0: did that anyway. But um, Sandra Foy loved them both. But the Secret Seven were my absolute heroes. We even made our own club. And got into trouble.
1: Indeed. Uh, Now, another um, source of contention has been Walter the Hot Water Bottle, whose name appears to change with every podcast. We've now had Walter Hottle Bottle. Although, curiously, Emma Bunday has sent in a tweet with a picture of a book of Walter Hottle Bottle, which is odd because we've already had a different picture of another. So this means there are, like, two different... Where some some author has gone i know i'm going to make a character that looks like a hot water bottle really also called walter yes how bizarre maybe
0: that was the kind of it was like you know instead of the stones against the beatles no, <laughs> against the Oasis, the battle of the hot water bottles called Walter. Think
1: you'll find. Yes, hottle bottle for me. Si- Siobhan
0: Moore, after a crap evening and a sleepless night, I'm cheering myself up listening to Books of the Year podcasts. Well,
1: here's another one for you. Indeed, and Carly says, uh, having just ironed a basket of school shirts extra slowly in order to listen to another Books of the Year podcast, also brilliant and funny and interesting, shirts smell a bit scorched. Not our fault. <laughs> Don't say, um, uh, Leslie, in any other circumstances, I would find the snoring of the youth next to me on the train unbearable, but as I'm sure it guarantees no conversation, I can listen to Books of the Year in peace, so I am quite content. And it's
0: your Books of the Year podcast with WH Smith, of course. It is, yes. So, so, yes. We, so maybe, uh, if we're going to do giveaways, maybe we could have a word with our friends at WH Smith.
1: I'm sure they'd be very open to the idea. Maybe we should broach it with them first before we suggest people turn up and demand oh, a free sure, book. Oh, sure, no, absolutely.
0: Because they, they, it's just occurred to us, you know. <laughs> you, you can't do and Do not go in mentioning Help our yourself. Name. Can I have the new Ian Rankin? I'm just going to help myself to everything, like in uh, Supermarket Sweep, but I, no, I haven't. Oh, I, I'm being arrested. <laughs> oh, OK. Do you know, but anyway, we're very grateful to them yes. for, for their support. yes. Plus, I would just like to say, uh, I just want to mention Squarespace. Oh, really? every podcast I listen to... <laughs>
1: has got Squarespace it Has got involved. Squarespace in it. Yes.
0: Even though they've got nothing to do with this and they haven't given us any no. money. I just I mean, feel come as though on.
1: If I, if I mention them... Maybe mo- if we mention RoundSpace, which probably doesn't exist, yes. that will sort of pressure them into thinking, oh, maybe, maybe we need a corner of this market. How about ZipRecruiter? ZipRecruiter, <laughs> yes! They're everywhere! Well, come on, ZipRecruiter! We
0: can reserve a space for you. <laughs> I don't think they operate in the UK. That's why. <laughs> no, they don't. No, because <laughs> we listen to too many American it's a complete, podcasts. W- complete waste of time. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, please get in touch. We would love to know uh, who's there and what you're reading and what you love. Um, we're not really interested in what you don't love. But anyway, just <laughs> uh, get in touch. Books of the Year Yahoo dot com. You can tweet us at Books of the Year. And Matt, I just want to mention this from yes. Kirsty Holmes. Uh huh. How about getting kermode movie which is uh, how mark kermode tweets oh yes How about getting mark on books of the year podcast to talk about his new book two of my favorite podcasts all rolled into one hashtag you know you want to well as luck would have it alan how are you very well thank you very nice to see you again and mark kermode always nice to see you mark it's been at least a few days it has uh and mark's book is uh how does it feel do you just want to explain the title of no, actually, Matt, if you describe uh, yes. Mark's cover and then Mark can explain the title. OK,
1: okay. so uh, Mark's cover is, is red, uh, dominating the, this, this front cover. A sort of a, a, a comic book feel uh, to, the, uh, to the front cover with a very cool picture of Mark uh, doing the flashing the peace sign in his teddy suit <laughs> with his very cool guitar. And then uh, Mark's name picked out in white. How Does It Feel in Yellow? A Life of Musical of Misadventures.
2: And, and why the title? Well, because that pretty much describes exactly what it is, because I've been in bands my whole life, from when I was a kid to now, um, and I, I st- I've, I've always played, and I wanted to write a book about being in bands and about how much I've loved being in bands and about how many of them have been catastrophic failures. And that particular, that picture on the front cover is from the, the point in my career when I decided that rather than being in rock bands, what I should do is launch myself on a, a as a musical comedian, as a stand-up. And that gag, the whole that character. That, that picture was taken, that's mid-80s, it was a character called Henry 100, and the, the, the joke was that I'm dressed like a member of Wadi. But I was singing excerpts from the Communist Party Manifesto. (laughs) Now, (laughs) that joke is funnier in abstract than it was in practice. And it's a Slade reference. Yeah, it is. How does it feel? Is is from Slade in Flame? It's the it's the for my money, it's the best. Yeah, not Bob Dylan. It's the um. How does it feel? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you. (laughs) Anyway, okay. So yeah, no, it's it's from it's from it's from Slade in Flame, which was the film that I you know kind of launched me on the route to all this.
1: And uh, describe Alan's. Yes, well, Alan's yeah. cover is a black and white picture of a far younger Alan Johnson uh, uh, concentrating furiously as he's putting a, a record on a record player with his tongue sticking out of his mm. mouth. That's, that's not me. Is yeah, it no.
3: not you? No, no. It's not. The publisher a, got hold of a photograph. Oh,
2: it's not. I Genuinely, no, no, that's no. not you. No, that's no, a good me. Looking. I it thought that was you.
0: I think everyone's going to think that it's you. Yeah, fine. So
1: <laughs> so, so Alan's cover is a random, random kid in black and white putting a record on a record. Could the have been me. Player. Yeah. Uh, Alan Johnson. In my life, a musical memoir, a music memoir. This boy can write; he's a natural, said the Spectator. And uh, in my life, obviously, works and
0: is a, and is a Beatles reference, I imagine. Beatles or- reference,
3: and this is twenty-five years that I was keen to be either a rock star or making my living out of music, writing songs. I thought afterwards. And I eventually gave up in 1982, having sent a tape of my songs to Elvis Costello. And as I say at the end, I'm still waiting for a <laughs> reply. <author. laughs> and they were and they were your best songs. Uh, you my say, best, yeah, my yeah, very yeah. best songs. Yeah, so we, and it's not saying much. And was that the final? Was that the moment when you realised that this ain't ever going to happen? Well, I was getting involved in the trade union movement, and I, you know, I've got married when I was 18, I had three kids, so there was no way that I was going to follow. The rock and roll lifestyle, but I always thought. I mean, the thing about Mark's book is wonderful because he's he's lived the dream in so many bands. I mean, <laughs> and so many bands with brilliant names, by the way. The Russians ate Bambi. Russians I think eat Bambi. Russians <laughs> eat Bambi was one of them. I mean, amazing. So, what was your first band? The Area, oh, well, the Vampires. I had a school band called the Vampires, and then the Area. And then the in betweens. All very boring. My eldest son was in a band called Stranger Than Nixon, which I thought was great. That's a it. great He's got name. it off a newspaper. That's headline. a very good name. Yeah. <laughs>
0: there, and there are a number of crossover areas between your book, but Lonnie Donegan mm-hmm. uh, is one of them. So I thought it'd be quite interesting to hear you both on Lonnie Donegan. You, Alan, talked to, I think, you talk about him being in Panto at the Chiswick Empire, but yeah. I couldn't quite
3: Do you see him in Panto? No, he wasn't in Panto. I, I was. I can't I can't remember it being a Panto. I was in a book, that because it was Christmas time uh, I kind of it should have been a panto but it wasn't he was the second artist on lead on the bill was Joan Regan He uh, was a very big star at the time but Lonnie for me I mean I'm about ten years 15 years older than mark here so I'm coming out a different dimension but but was privileged as all we baby boomers were to be there almost if not at the birth of rock and roll at the postnatal stage and Lonnie was Absolutely crucial to all of that. You know, more kids picked up a guitar and started to play it because they'd seen Lonnie Donegan and because skiffle seemed like something you could do. Uh, And in an era where all our music was transatlantic, all the people you listened to came from America, here was Lonnie, okay, doing lots of American stuff when he wasn't leaving his chewing gum on the bedpost overnight, that kind of musical stuff that he got involved in. And I bought Burt Whedon's Playing A Day... Because I'd seen Lonnie Donegan and I got my mother when she had a little Paul's win to get me a Spanish acoustic guitar off the catalogue because I'd seen Lonnie Mm. Donegan. And I think many people I know now, you know, people like Harrison and Clapton say that's how they got started as well.
0: Uh, and, Mark, and you're well, in a skiffle band now, so yeah. b- b- explain... explain.
2: Well, a- it's absolutely true. I mean, what, what you're saying about, basically, Lonnie Donegan was Britain's first pop star. He was the person who, for, for, the, for, for British culture, invented rock and roll. And, you know, there's the story which Billy Bragg has written about in his book about yeah. the origins of skiffle, which is fantastic, about how skiffle is basically proto-rock and roll and proto-punk. And he talks about, you know, Ken Collier going over and hearing these stories that were American jug bands, string bands, spasm bands, coming back here, bringing that music back... And then originally, skiffle starting as a kind of breakdown in the middle of jazz sets. Mm. And they would just put all the instruments down, and they'd come forward and they'd do a little skiffle set. And then Lonnie Donegan doing those songs was the thing that inspired... I me. Mean, for example, you're obviously a huge Beatles fan and, you know, the Quarrymen happened because of Lonnie Donegan. So everything that we think of as British rock and roll comes down to this moment when... When it, it it kicked off with Lonnie Donegan and also it was the thing that inspired people who that it had probably hadn't had any musical training to grab an instrument or to make an instrument, you know, whether it's a tea chest bass or a washboard, and just start playing. And for me, it's really important because one of the things in the book is, I'm not I'm I. I'm not a good musician. I can play a lot of instruments badly, but I can't play any instrument well. But what I've always thought is, don't be frightened of musical instruments. And if you want someone to prove that, that's what skiffle is about. Skiffle is about find whatever you can get and make a noise, make a song with it. And the whole of British rock and roll comes from that, and it comes from Donegan and Collier and Barbara and all those people going, look, you can make this incredible noise that was itself inspired by American you know, jug band music. Dirtball Musicians making music with nothing other than what they had around the house.
1: And a, a common thing. It's interesting that you mentioned the Beatles, though, because the, the Beatles obviously come up in both of your books. And I was I was struck reading yours, Alan, as well, that uh, how swiftly the Beatles were taken seriously, how swiftly they went from just being some pop band that uh, you know, all the teenage girls was, were screaming over to being one that was being mentioned in the same breath as poets, that, people were, that critics were saying, we are going to remember these lyrics and, and these compositions for years and years to come.
3: Well, they went from Love Me Do to Strawberry Fields Forever in sort of five years, which was incredible. But what you have to remember is back then there was a real generation gap in pop music, you didn't have any elderly rockers. You didn't have people sitting around in their 50s, 40s or 30s talking about popular music. You know, when you got to 24, you listened to Frank Sinatra. You know, it was very much young people's music and a a chasm, a generation gap. So when the Beatles came on, all of our parents, so I was 12, 13, all the older generation was saying... They don't write their songs. Of course, they, don't, they didn't write that. That was Tim Pan who wrote that for them. They would not even give them the credit of writing their own songs. And for it to go to that, to suddenly The Times reviewing Sergeant Peppers, you know, pop music being taken really seriously a few years later, to us, to, I was that generation of kids source of enormous pride and even patriotism, because when they broke America, nobody broke yeah. America. No mm. British acts broke America. And suddenly the Beatles were one, two, three and four on the, on the you know, uh, top 100. That
2: speed thing is a key thing, isn't it, though? because the Beatles went from sounding like, you know, love me do to sounding like, um, you know, psychedelic Beatles in the space of five years, during which Oasis went from sounding like the Beatles to sounding like the <laughs> yeah. Beatles, you know. The, you, made the, you, you made the point, Alan, uh, in your book. Uh,
0: about the Stones and the fact they're still around and still touring now that the equivalent would have been, yeah. you know, when you're
3: writing, when you're starting off, seeing yeah. a band who were big in 1910. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, 1901, 19- 19- actually, because 19- 19- I 19- started one. in 57, and if in 1957 they said this band of popular musicians right. that started in 1901 is now starting a new tour. <laughs> <Now> <laughs> and that is that's gonna- the longevity <laughs> of the Stones, yeah. yeah. I want to mention something which might get overlooked, and I, but before before uh, we
0: move on get... Caught up in other things, I want to ask you about Jennifer Shepherd yeah. because well, thank there's, you. A, there's a bit in your book where you talk about weird yeah. bedtime rituals, yeah. uh, which you have,
3: and there's a oh, very, yes. very strange one oh, involving yes. this girl. So just explain, <laughs> explain this one. I had to get this onto the page. God yeah. knows why. It's because <laughs> So you walked into our house, there was about, you know, there was a family, two families usually on each floor, was an old sort of crumbling slum. Uh, and once you got past the front door, no one had any locks. And when I went to bed every night, for some reason, I was very prud- prudish about taking off my clothes. And I would check under the bed to see if Jennifer Shepherd, who lived further up Southam Street had got in there and hidden under the bed to watch me get undressed. Now, if there's a psychiatrist <laughs> who's listening to this, can I'd just like to signal. I have yeah. to say I stopped doing it when I was about ten or eleven. Did you uh, kind of did you secretly hope that she was? No. No, no. Well, well every fear Kirby is a was repressed
2: mine, desire. Yeah. I I, I, think mean, I think I think we know I think we know what was really um, happening in that yeah, story. Yeah, all contributions <laughs> gratefully received.
3: <laughs> did, you, did you but you fancied her, presumably. Not particularly, no. No, Linda Kirby was the girl I fancied at school. Not so much Jennifer Shepard. But she lived just up the road. So for some reason, I thought she might be...
2: Did you fancy Linda yeah. Kirby because she wasn't the kind of girl who would be hiding under Maybe, your yeah. bed? She lived a bit further away.
3: No. Yeah. I wonder if actually yeah.
0: your, your careers as musicians kind of dovetail a bit in as much as... There's a bit, Alan, in your book where you say, I think it's 1973, you realise you'd never play in a group again. And that's kind of about the time you're thinking, Mark... I'm going to play in a group for the rest of my I'll life. I'm play in a group for the rest yeah. of my life, so... Yeah.
3: Well, I'd love to have done it like Mark. You know, I'd have loved to have done it just down the pub, you know, with a bunch of amateurs at weekends, but it never never happened. I never met anyone who played... One guy who lived next door to me used to do a bit of Simon and Garfunkel. And then, uh, you know, the union and then politics and all of that. But we did have something else in common, which is the harmonica. I mean, it's hilarious, Mark's description of that uh, chromatic uh, Hofner in C, wasn't it? (laughs) C (laughs) uh, of him playing that. And learning to play it very well. I think Mark's kind of self-deprecating about his musical talents. Whereas me, when Bob Dylan came out and you saw Bob Dylan, once again, I was there at the start, and with that thing round his neck, and my uh, sister's boyfriend made me one out of a coat hanger. Mm -hmm. And it was enough trouble trying to play a harmonica when you've got it and you're just concentrating on that. Playing a guitar and trying to blow into this thing that was normally about an inch away from where your mouth was (laughs) was was very difficult.
2: You ever done that, Mark? I could see. Yeah, no, I play with the hooky thing because I play double bass and I and and we. Re, I mean, I say in the book we call it the hooky thing because no one knows what it's called. When they describe it, they describe it as the thing that Bob Dylan, Dylan used yeah, to play with, and yeah. of course, famously, um, Les Paul w- had made a version of it out of a coat hanger and two bits of wood. That was he made a flippable harmonica holder, and and so, but I don't know what they're called. And went, the first one I ever got was when Linda, my my wife, bought one for me, and she didn't know what they were called, so she went on the internet and Googled harmonica hooky thing and it came up, so ever since then, that's what we call it—the hooky thing. Yeah. So our books that we're discussing
0: uh, in this podcast: Alan Johnson in My Life, a musical memoir, and Mark's latest tome. How does it feel? Uh, I think it'd be quite nice to hear you guys read a little bit. If that, if there is a, is there a section that you might like to uh, to read? Well, it. If... I haven't got my glasses, is Mark.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you... <laughs> <laughs> if you'd have warned me. <laughs> uh, they're in.
2: The Do you have your glasses? Okay. Should we should we go with Martin first while you're finding your glasses? I'll go uh, get my glasses, right. yeah. okay. Oh, well, shut me. Yeah. Good luck, Mark. Let me read you the intro, because this, in a way, kind of sums up what the book is about, OK? This is the introduction to uh, How Does It Feel, and it's called You Hum It, I'll Play it. How much of this do you want, like, a couple of minutes? Uh, I would like about a minute and a half. OK, here we go. If I, if I sort of if you stand tell me, up you, if, and... if you start making motions, it means stop, right? OK, right. OK, here we go. This is the beginning of the book. Many people have recurrent nightmares. Some dream of sinking in quicksand. Others are consumed by visions of being unable to escape from an endlessly elongating corridor or of waking up naked on the underground or accidentally wearing pyjamas to a party. I have a recurrent nightmare and it goes like this. I'm standing on the stage of the Royal Festival Hall in London. As I look out, I can see that the auditorium is packed right up to the very top of the teetering tiered balconies. Behind me, the BBC Concert Orchestra are playing the opening bars of a particularly complicated piece of music, rushing inexorably towards the moment when the solo instrument, the chromatic harmonica, will leap into life and take the tune. I look down at my hands and I realise that I am holding a harmonica. It is big and cold and heavy. I raise it to my mouth knowing that everyone is expecting me to play the jaunty lead line from this familiar tune with its distinctive opening ascending phrase and fiddly, semitonal twiddles and doodles. But I can't play it. I know I can't because I've already tried and I just can't do it. I feel the unforgiving metal of the harp against my lips, my mouth parched and dry. I see the faces of the audience staring and expectant. I see the conductor raising his baton and pointing it towards me and I feel myself starting to choke. That's my recurrent nightmare, with all its recurrent fears of public exposure and humiliation. The only difference between my recurrent nightmare and yours, hopefully, is that mine isn't in fact a dream, but a memory. This actually happened in real life, in the real-life Royal Festival Hall with the real BBC Concert Orchestra. The audience were also real. They were there in the packed auditorium and there were thousands more of them at home listening to the concert as it was broadcast on BBC Radio 3. That seems like a very good place to...
0: Uh...
1: That's a great start, it's... by the way. Thank that's you. That's a very Captivated. good start. Captivated. Yeah.
0: Captivated. So that's Mark reading
3: uh, from uh, his new book. Alan, have well, you Mark's found... Mark's at the beginning of his book. Mine's at the end, <laughs> uh, where, where I'm just uh, reflecting. Uh, it's a chapter called Every Day I Write the Book. I'm never going to be a rock star now, but actually I'm writing. And the Beast from the East has kind of roared in. OK. Or as someone said on the internet, a normal day in Finland. Um, LAUGHTER And I say this at the end. After 1982, I became even more immersed in the Labour movement, from which I emerged only in 2017. In the 11 years I spent as a government minister, I never picked up my guitar once. As soon as the electorate dispensed with our services in 2010, I went to a music shop not far from Parliament and bought a Yamaha acoustic six-string. I began to play again, the fingertips on my left hand gradually becoming calloused as they reacquainted themselves with the strings and frets. Then a guy in Edinburgh contacted me, having read about me once playing a Hofner Very Thin. He had one for sale and drove down to Hull to show it to me. We met in the Holiday Inn on the marina on a crisp autumn day and exchanged small talk before he opened the heavy black guitar case that rested across the arms of a wooden chair in the deserted hotel lounge. As the hinged lid lifted, so did my heart. I felt sure that this was the very guitar... I'd first fallen in love with when I gazed at it through the window of that music shop in Wardour Street. All those years ago, the beautiful cherry-red Hoffner, purchased for £35 and cruelly taken from me on that night of skullduggery in an Islington pub. I had no way of proving it, but very few very things were made with this particular combination of distinctive features, and none at all, I believe, after 1963, in a strong light, a serial number was visible through one of the Venetian cutaways, but as I didn't know the number of the one that was stolen, I had nothing to check it against. I did not, I hasten to add, suspect my new friend from Edinburgh of being involved in the theft. The fact that he wouldn't have been born when the robbery <laughs> took place seemed a reasonable alibi. Whatever adventures my beloved Hofner had experienced, it had obviously been well looked after by its subsequent owners... I coughed up the asking price of £800, the transaction was completed, and it was at last back where it belonged. And so I have probably got the guitar I bought in 1965. The weather has been as close to the dreadful winter of 62-63 as I've seen since. The Stones are touring, students in Paris are protesting, and the UK will soon be out of the European community, just as we were back then. It may well be time to put the band back together again. Uh, Alan Johnson in my
0: life, Uh, Mark Kerman, how does it feel? We'll talk more with both of them after this. It's Simon Moe's Books of the Year, Alan Johnson in my life, Mark Kermode's How Does It Feel? And uh, we've heard some readings and uh, we had the, the beginning of Mark's book and the ending of Alan's. And just before Matt comes back with some more questions, I, I was struck by the fact that you talked about you didn't emerge from the Labour movement till like until 2017, like you were lost in a cave or, or something. Is that part of, the, part of your life which you've just emerged from? Is that, is that how it feels?
3: And That's how it felt to come out of government. So yeah. I'd been a minister for 11 years, red boxes and all of that, five different cabinet positions, and then suddenly there's a whole gap in your life because you have to be an MP and you have to be a minister as well. And it did feel like I was emerging, blinking into the light. There just wasn't time to do anything else. I could never have written these books
1: if I was still a minister. Yeah. I, I, I've got to say I love both of these books. I, I'm a big fan of music as well, so I, I was. I, I knew I was I was going to be knocking at an open door. Mark, I, w- I want to talk about yours first. I, I realised, sort of midway through reading it, why I was connecting so strongly with it. And it was because of the number of touchstones within your book that that are, are touchstones for me in my life. Now, they, my instinct was, well, as I was reading it, that they perhaps weren't as obvious to you as they were to me as a reader. And one of those, uh, for example, you uh, performing with Timmy Mallet. Yes. Which I'm sure was was not meant to be a highlight in the book, but oh my God, he's on the same, same set as, we were, as Timmy Mallett? We
2: were impressed. We did, you know, Timmy Mallet's utterly brilliant. It was half an hour of the Railtown Bottlers explaining to Timmy Mallet how to be in a skiffle band. And, and I have to say, he was lovely. Absolutely. He was lovely.
1: Absolutely. And and you being on the Royal Irish. Which, um, for, for me growing up in, 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 on Merseyside and anyone who was in the 80s, will know the Royal Iris, which is this uh, ferry boat which famously the Beatles played yeah, on. Yeah. You played Fighting on. Kevin. But the, the reason that anyone who was born in Liverpool around about the same time as me will know the Royal Iris is because infamously there was a party on there involving the Happy Mondays, Tony Wilson, and the farm, which ended very, very <laughs> messily <Okay>. indeed. <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> who, Royal would Iris? who would have thought? Who would have thought? Mark and, and also, were you supporting New Model Army, which you throw away in a sentence, but I had to read it again because I was oh my goodness, you were on yeah. the same, you were supporting New Model Army. Yeah, we supported New Model Army in the in the Solent Bar in
2: Manchester in the early 1980s when the band I was in was called Border Incident, and um and that was around the time of Vengeance, which was of course you oh, know, yes. me, which is classic New Model yes. Army period. And and I remember really clearly because we turned up. The way it usually works is that you have the the lead band. How good the, the support band sound is really down to how kind the lead band will be in terms of giving you a sound mm. check some main bands they just they don't care and they're really and i had a particular experience at a club in uh, in in london in which i found that out to be the case new model army who had this kind of reputation of being oh you know new model mm. angry oh, we turned up they could not have been sweeter they were the minute we turned up they were sound checking they went okay yeah fine we got it yeah fine we got can we finish for the guy and their lead singer was, of course, on the album. He was called Slade, the Leveller, right? And yeah. I had the a copy of the album, and I, it was a ten-inch album, wasn't it? Yeah. And you know, and I went Slade, he went Justin. Super. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they were just really, really nice, and I have to say, incredibly tight. I mean, they they played, they like they were like a you know well-oiled machine. Oh, so they still
1: cool. are. I still see them live. I, I, I have to say. As far as your your musical talent, and, and Alan's already mentioned this, you, you, I think you downplay it because, mm. number one, I've seen you perform live and you are clearly talented Uh, number two the number of times you sort of would give the impression of you know how how bad could this be you know i'm sure i can get the hang of it eventually but you clearly can you clearly have that that musical talent that, that shines through well i think the honest
2: truth of it is this um when you consider how much time i've spent playing musical instruments i should be a lot better than i am what i am is proof that that most people. I you know some people say I'm not musical at all and it's entirely possible that there are some people for whom this isn't the case, but for most people there is, there is a kind of thing which is, you know, don't even try because, you know, these other musicians are doing it properly and I, that's always really bothered me. If you, very few people can be a brilliant musician, a classical musician, somebody who can play in the BBC Concert Orchestra, somebody like Robert Ziegler who can conduct the BBC Concert Orchestra whilst reading conductor's music, which has got all the instruments and they'll play a few bars and Ziegler will point to it. But be flat. Is it B flat? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. But most people, if you give them a chart can get a song out of something and I honestly that is all I've ever done and in in graduating from guitar to the bass I found the perfect instrument because the thing with the bass and particularly a double bass is your notation does not have to be very accurate you can miss a note on a double bass by a good few inches and no one knows because the double bass goes <laughs> much like an old t chest bass and so for me it was the perfect instrument for have a go and you know it, it you you may not you may not sound brilliant Brilliant, but you won't sound that bad. And I've also done the other trick of I've surrounded myself by other people who have been, you know, Matt O'Casey, who was the guitarist in the Railtown Bottlers, who is, you know, he's played a guitar that was played by B.B. King, uh, the band, the uh, rest of that band, you know, Ollie Fox went on to become a really, really important theatrical uh, arranger and composer. Steve Hiscock, who was the drummer, was in Ensemble Bash and has toured the world as a. Because I mean, I've surrounded myself by people... Who are really musically talented. And the only difference between me and them was I was the person who said, right, let's get on stage and do a gig. We know five songs, let's get on stage and do a gig. That's been, if I have a talent, that's it. Um,
0: it's already been referred to the number of bands that you were in. Mm. We've, we've mentioned, you just mentioned Border Incident. Uh, Alan mentioned Russians Eat Bambi. Yes. There was, uh, I mean, I gave up right. So there's the spark plugs, the yeah. tigers, the basics. Fifth incident, brag, yeah. hopeless. Ho- yeah, hopeless misspelt as hopless. Yes, <laughs> that was funny at the time, <laughs> and and it reminded. <laughs> Thank was, you for laughing at no, that no, no, joke no, no, very good. because so very few good. do. Yes, <laughs> and I thought this reminds this reminds me of something, and then it, and then it came to me. Go there on. is a there is a sketch on a Monty Python album which I think Eric Idle reads about. R- rock news right and about some pop stars who are in a band called charisma then the donkeys then then they become blind drunk dead monkeys dead salmon then trout fr- then they change their name to fried trout then poached trout in a white wine sauce <laughs> <laughs> then they split up then they then they become herring red herring <laughs> Dead herring, dead loss, <laughs> then they become heads together, dead together, and then they finally decide to call themselves Helen Shapiro. <laughs> <laughs> but that's your life. That why, is. Why so many bands? Do you, are you, do you break them up? Do you go in and is it just that you move on or you get married or you move house? Well, I mean, what is it?
2: I mean, at school, bands would form and break up like, you know, like gangs, like groups of people. I mean, Dave, David Baddiel, who I was in the, the spark plugs with, tells this story that I don't remember, but it has the smack of truth about it. He says that the way that we threw him out of the spark plugs, which again, I don't remember why, why we would, because he had a nice guitar and he could play. He said that one day we all came into school and went, oh, we've we've broken the band up. And then the next day we reformed it without him. And I don't remember that happening, but that was the kind of thing that would happen. I mean, one week I was in the Vibrokes and then they I remember really clearly they came up to me in the corridor and they said... Um, it said, we're throwing you out of the band. And I said, oh, why? Am I not playing? They said, no, no, we think you're a really good guitarist. We just don't like you. <laughs> and, that, and it was from that, that was how I ended up in the basics. So that, it was a lot of them like that. And then, you know, it's it, it, once you start being in bands and you never stop being in bands, there's always an overlap. You know, one band ends, there's another one beginning. And uh so it, it's been 40 years or something. It, that's... It, I mean, I don't know how many bands it is. It's probably probably 20 bands altogether. But band names is always the thing. What are we going to be called? When, when Simon Blair and I came up with Bragg, we thought that was the best name in the whole world. And Gary Kemp, God bless him, from Spandau Ballet, read the book and said some lovely things about it. But one of the things he said about it was he said it was such a shame that Bragg never became famous because he said it was one of the worst band names he I had really, ever heard. Isn't it
1: Bragg with an exclamation mark? Well,
2: the, the exclamation mark came and went. In, initially, <laughs> initially, because of Wham!, Exclamation uh, uh, mark. Uh, we will brag! Exclamation mark. And then we thought it was silly, so then we lost it. But, but. But it kind of came and went a little bit. So well, I don't know Billy, if it's... Billy
3: nicked it to be his surname. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's
2: true. Is, Is there a
0: brief way of doing
2: the Terry Jacks stage blood story? Because yeah, I, I think mean,
0: that's just yeah. it, it's worth an
2: outing. So the what happened was the, the short version. Was, uh, uh, um, I'm never knowingly undergigged, and when I was at Manchester, there was a there was a talent competition, and I saw a thing which said twenty five pounds expenses for anyone who p- p- gets an act. So I said to this guy Kevin, a friend of mine, I said, "Do you want to be in a band?" He said, "No." I said, 25 pounds expenses." He said, "Fine." When do we? I said, "It's tonight." so we, did a, we got together a music comedy act that at that point was called Herpes 100 which we, again we thought was really funny and we <laughs> played a couple of songs we were on a stage for about seven minutes and we got £25 expenses as a result of it we went down better than, than any band that we'd been in before. So we decided to expand this joke, and we formed this band, Hopeless. And Hopeless again were based on one joke, and the one Hopeless joke was this: We came on Kevin. It was this incredible looking figure. He looked like riffraff out of the Rocky Horror Show, and he'd come on stage on a skateboard. And I'd play um, the opening of Alstros Brux Zarathustra on the French horn, which I play very <laughs> very badly, <laughs> but play that. And then we play uh, "Since You've Been Gone," you know, which we could actually play, right? And Then we'd start playing the opening of Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks, which requires a tremolo pedal, you down, 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 and everyone knows that. Then everyone, oh, what are they playing? Down, down, down. And then Kevin would start singing, you know, goodbye to you, my trusted friend, we've known each other. It's very sad and blah, 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 blah. But the gag was that Kevin had gone out to the... Joke shop and had bought blood capsules. And so he put them in his mouth. And then when it went, Goodbye, my friend, it's hard to die, suddenly we would all start hemorrhaging. (laughs) And this blood would start going all over the front row of the audience. The first time we did it, there was almost a riot because people hadn't expected it. And then suddenly we got all these other bookings. But the problem was, from my point of view, that joke was funny once. And then the next time we, I thought, OK, this isn't so funny anymore. But so then I left hopeless, hopeless. But they then went on and had a really successful career without me. They're playing increasingly big gigs. And their joke being, we, you know, we hemorrhage to the sound of seasons <laughs> in the sun. See, Alan, you, that's what you...
0: You missed the trick there. So, you know, when you were in uh, The Area... In your first band, maybe you should have uh, taken a few tricks from Mark. I should have done, yeah. Well, Marks was a kind of comedy.
3: Yeah, that was comedy was. music act. We were we were very serious, and we formed our own band. Advertising Melody Maker for a bass guitarist and a, a rhythm guitarist, put the band together, and w- the best we ever did. I mean, Mark, you backed Alison Moyer as well. Right? You yeah, we were on yeah. telly with Alison Moyes. Yeah, and best we did was a band called Fifth Dimension
0: oh, yeah, who well, did
3: mess us up with our because we were the, yeah. support, <laughs> the support act and then this crime wave followed me around so the guitar, the uh, the amplifier that I was paying for on HP for two years got nicked, wasn't insured and then eventually they got my Hoffner Very Thin with this second band the In-Betweens who were multiracial, very unusual for 67 and my version of Wild Thing which I used to sing with this beautiful lead singer Carmen who was the girl lead singer of In-Betweens used to dance around me with her mini skirt and all of that. If you haven't seen that, uh, especially with a bit of don't, 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 Wild Thing, I Think I Love You... That was just a showstopper. That was a showstopper. But if blood had hemorrhaged over the front row <laughs> yes. of the people in the pied bull in
2: Islington, it might not have. It, just it t- might have led to the cancellation of uh... the, the stolen instruments thing. Is really sorry, I don't want to interrupt. But but because there's a long thing about the guitar that I built got nicked. Yes, yeah, the yeah. flat I lived in in Hume got broken into, and in the room there was the guitar that I built, which was worth nothing, and next to it was a black 1971 Fender Stratocaster, and they nicked my guitar. <laughs> and I one of the things is I found a photograph. Of it, and I, I have this hope that, like at the end of your book, being yeah, returned back, back yeah. that you know, if somebody this the guitar that I built is quite distinctive. If anyone's got it, I'll give you thirty quid for it. I'd love to have <laughs> it back. Quid. That's how much it costs to build.
1: And yeah, right. um, Alan, anyone reading your book, or, or certainly when you when you flip at the start, you'll see the sort of chapter headings, and you realise, oh right, so we're going from sixties to eighties here with the, those chapter headings, all with um, the song titles from from those years. There are to me two, sort of, well, two obvious omissions, and I want you to talk about why you decided not to include punk rock and prog rock, because it, it clearly comes across that you're not a fan of of, of either. Yeah,
3: no. Well, I understood punk rock as being a reaction to prog rock, but, you know, Emerson, Lake, and Bloody Palmer uh... right up my nose (laughs) Uh, but punk I say in the book rather like Skiffle and Lonnie Donegan I mean the good thing about punk is people picked up instruments and got playing again as a reaction to all the kind of you know the the prog rock that had gone before and out of punk came Joe Jackson Elvis Costello you know great artist Paul Weller Um, but punk itself the Sex Pistols I I couldn't list they did nothing for me um, but there's also kind of different genres. So Mark was very much involved at, at university. I mean, I left school at 15, and it was a bunch of kind of working-class kids who were looking for the opportunity to play. You had to hire a hall or something. You, know, you didn't have the kind of... facilities my son had at university to, to play music. And it was a real struggle. So when it came to recording our... what well, I know you're going to ask me about this great uh, track, Hard Life, from <laughs> 1967, which was the demo disc we recorded in Regent Sound... in in Denmark Street, so Tim Pan Alley. And the lead singer, Danny Curtis, who we thought was very old, he was 19, you know, I was 16 and my mate Andrew was was 16, Uh, he arranged all this himself, got us an hour at Regent Sound, where Jimi Hendrix recorded, where the, The Faces recorded, to do our... And that is probably one of the... That's what I'm trying to recapture, that moment of listening to it being played back to us, our own song... That excitement, because suddenly you listen to it on good equipment as well. You never listen to it on good equipment. You listen to Radio Luxembourg if you were lucky and, you know, terrible old speakers on dance set, record players. Suddenly you listen to State of the Art, which made it sound better than it was. And the other thing I was trying to recapture is that glorious feeling of being on stage, playing music with other people, not in the bedroom by yourself, with other musicians and that was just the most exciting. It's never been recaptured. In a way, I suppose I've always tried to recapture that with speeches at big union meetings. I was going to say, so if you had to choose
0: between playing the 100 Club or you know, speaking at the Labour Party conference, what would oh, you choose? Oh, it would be music every time, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got no desire to speak at Labour Party conference. Anymore, well, this is going
0: to be the only interview that you do where we're not going to end up by saying, what's happening to the Labour Party? No, Who it do you think? For it? Because we're not we're not doing that kind of thing. Uh, uh, no. We'll wait. No, I'm no going to no ask Mark those League. questions yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, instead. Uh, Alan Johnson's book is In My Life. Mark Kermode's book is How Does It Feel? Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Thanks. Thank you. So thanks to Alan Johnson and Mark Kermode. Alan said a very interesting thing about politics yes, as he, he left the studio.
1: Wouldn't be fair to uh, refer back fair. to that, not no. really. But I no. might mention it sometime.
0: <laughs> it was very interesting. Because mm. I'm sure that he. the standard format is talk about your book, talk about your book, talk about your book, tell us about the Labour Party. Yes. Oh, by the way, while you're here, Alan. Talk about the book, talk about the book. Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> <laughs> Your thoughts, Alan? And we didn't do that. No. So I think he was. I think he was quite relieved. Uh, so books of the year at yahoo.com, That's our email. Lawrence Overton. Thank you for recommending Paris Echo. I could relate to the uncanny feelings of walking around a foreign city so strongly. I always have a strange feeling of recognizing complete strangers in new cities, and the exploration of doubles in the book really resonated with me. Having not been to Paris for over twenty years. I want to go back with Paris Echo as a guidebook. If you could just suggest Sebastian Fulks get an index included, that would be really helpful. I'm interested to see if it has made me feel differently about a city that I spent a month in and never felt connected with. Lawrence, thank you very much indeed. Whether whether you get the same dispensation from your other half the way Sebastian yes. Fultz went, oh, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to go to Paris. Uh,
1: by myself. Yes. Bye, I'm off. Uh, Jackie Connor uh, emailed to say, I'm listening to the podcast at present and I've just heard about Lucid Dreaming, which was... I think Louise DeLange uh, and Jackie says I tried this a few times very interesting it's when you are aware that you are dreaming you leave a symbol so that when you see said symbol you know for sure that you're doing it I don't expect you're into these things but it's an interesting experience Uh, but you've just read out my letter mum couldn't get me to touch milk I hated Horlicks so Born Vita was the best she could do Uh, unfortunately it was stashed with sugar Uh, no rye vitas were used at any stage in making the Born Vita but if you go to Amazon it looks like the They've tried revamping it at stupid prices, it says here. Keep plugging Cadbury's though, they might send you some, says yeah, Jackie.
0: I don't understand the dream point that she that Jackie's making. If you're aware that you're dreaming, you leave a symbol so yes. that when you see said symbol, you know for sure that you're doing it.
1: Yes. So the lucid dreaming thing is where you are aware that you're dreaming, but you draw a symbol whilst you're dreaming and then when you wake up from your dream you're like there's the symbol that I left when I was doing the lucid dreaming so I know that I wasn't dreaming well I was dreaming what do I write it with with a pen Uh, well paper. by by the side well because what you do is before you do your lucid dreaming you make sure you've got a pen and paper I mean I'm not saying that I recommend it or have ever done it I'm just saying that that's probably what it is I obviously haven't read Louise DeLange's book. That, that's why. That'll be why.
0: Yeah. Anyway, Jackie, thanks uh, very much for getting in touch. Michelle Ong says, or possibly Ong, how would you go with O-U-N-G? I'm going to go with Ong. I'm going to say Ong. Okay, Michelle Ong. All right. Thank you very much indeed, Michelle, Simon, and Matt. Great to hear you both together on the podcast, which I love. Mm-hmm. My reply to the question, whose books do you have the most of, would have to include Louis Bernier, who was on recently, Sebastian Foulkes, who was on recently, and Kate Atkinson, who was on recently. They all show one thing in common. So the choices have been great so far. Uh, on the subject... I imagine John Boyne's feeling a little bit cross at this point. <laughs> on the subject of which books to get rid of and how, which uh, which came up recently, I just wondered if you were the book fairy, Simon. My daughter lives in Islington and came across a book left on the window ledge of a local cafe. It had been left by the book fairy who requested that the book... Tears of the Giraffe by Alexander McCall Smith be passed on afterwards. She's just finished her master's and it was the first novel she'd really read for four years and the first without critical analysis for even longer than that. Whoever the book fairy is, thanks for nudging her back
1: into reading for pleasure again. Keep up the great work. Uh, Annie Coles, whilst I was listening to Melvin Burgess, he mentioned Japanese crime fiction book out. And I wanted to reach through the airwaves and high-five this chap. When I read it a few years ago, all I wanted to do was talk to someone about it, but couldn't persuade anyone I knew to give it a go. Could you guys do a podcast on Asian fiction books? I'm a huge fan and when I've lent my books out to friends have had mostly positive feedback and uh, and then uh, Annie gives us a few recommendations. The Tattoo Murder Case, I Have the Right to Destroy Myself, Naoko uh, and Inspector Imanchi Investigates, amongst many others. I I noticed you left off the authors there. The authors, yes. uh, Yes, because I was not going to uh, uh, try those names because I think we all know which way that would go. Yes, yes, obviously, yes.
0: Uh, so thank you very much indeed for uh, for downloading us. Thank you to all our sponsors for uh, for being there for us.
1: Thanks for being there. And uh, do um, do get in touch, Mr Squarespace and yeah. uh, and Mrs uh, Zip Recruiter. Yeah, that's right. But also thanks to WH
0: Smith and, yes. and our shaving friends and our economist <laughs> friends. Uh, next week, Ben McIntyre is going to be on The Spy and the Traitor. Wow, there's so much press about that There book is a little, isn't there? And I? the revelations that he's come up with. Mm. And the allegations he's come up with. Uh, Also on the way, Graham Norton, Gary Barlow, Cressida Cowell, Chris Riddell, Ian Rankin.
1: Ian Rankin. Ian Rankin. I'm going to be a fanboy again, aren't I? Ian, tell us about how you're so great. Please. And, uh, and Wally Funk. Anyway, uh, that's all
0: to come uh, on future editions of Books of the Year. If you have any recommendations, any suggestions, just anything you want to tell us, uh, you can email books the year at yahoo.com and tweet us at Books of the Year. Matt, you've been a sensation as ever. Once uh, again, you've been a revelation. <laughs> Thank you.